Hello and welcome to the 139th episode of The Sausage Factory, which is brought to you by Spong.com and hosted by me, Chris O'Regan. In this show, we interview video game developers and ask them how they made their start making games, what their influences are and who inspires them. Split into two halves, the show initially focuses on the developer themselves, and in the second half we discuss the game they're here to promote, which in this case is Missile Cards by Nathan Muner. Nathan, who are you hey, Chris. and what do you do? Hey, uh, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, yeah, so I'm Nathan Minier, and I I do a lot of things, I guess. <laughs> um, I've been making games for about three years as an indie developer. Um, but, but prior to that, I was a freelance writer. I've been a freelance writer for a long time now, and I was a game journalist. I used to write for a lot of um, trade publications like Nintendo Power and uh, IGN and GameSpot and uh, a bunch of other ones that don't exist anymore. Did you ever um, work for Future? I did, yeah. I did, did quite a bit of work for We all did at one point, right? Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sorry, just a so, bit, of, bit of group hug here. This is what we're, <laughs> we're sharing now. So, yeah, okay, right. What did you do for them? Was it like uh, PC Gamer? Or? Yeah, pretty much all the, I mean, all the magazines like, uh, all, like the play, play, PlayStation Magazine, Xbox Magazine, Nintendo Power, PC Gamer, and then MacLife, I think, was also featured for a while. Um, you didn't do and it, there might have been. No, that was the one of the few I didn't get into. Uh, I did like GamePro and EGM and a lot of the old ones. Stuff I, yeah, okay, so that's a really good sort of founding. So you you've been commentating on the media itself, <laughs> like me yeah, for a very, very long time. That's awesome. Um, I just <laughs> want to ask, and this I don't like to do the cultural clash thing. It's just tedious, but I I found it quite fascinating. I've had lots of discussions with American. Uh, journalists and or writers or commentators, whatever you want to call us. Um, <laughs> and what do you make of the of the British evolution of that kind of? Because we we have a very different outlook. It's always about humour, isn't it? It's obsessed <laughs> with every article has to have some joke at someone's expense. I mean, did you <laughs> did you know where that came from? Do you know why that is? I have no clue. Actually, I've, I, there's. I haven't read a lot of UK publications lately. Although maybe Pocket Gamer, I right. think it's probably the one I've checked the most. Uh, I read Gamma Sutra a lot, but it's sort of a melting pot of that's all kinds of different folks. Yeah, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I see, I've seen plenty of like humor in games writing over the years too, but uh, yeah, I, I guess I didn't pick up on that. No, it's a, it's a phenomenon in the UK we've had for decades. Um, <laughs> and we never, you know, our we still have magazines that are on store shelves, but you can walk into a store and buy a video game magazine. For That's reasons. amazing. It's amazing because <laughs> you do that. It's uh, Edge still exists. I haven't bought it in years, um, but I know Edge people now in the US know that's a thing, and they treat it with like a coffee table book. Like, oh my god, it's got a spine and everything, and there's hardly yeah, yeah. any ads in it. That's because it costs ten dollars. <laughs> does if we go to the US, I think it's about, no, it's probably more now. It might be twelve dollars now. Um, but it's it's but there's there's a thing about how you know um, the evolution of British video game um, journalism, and it's 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 akin to similar to game development actually. In that game development in the UK sprang from a very different part or, or, or place than it did everywhere else in the world, or specifically Europe, I should say. Europe had its own way of doing things. You know, we embraced eight bit computers, then the Amiga, the Atari ST, all that kind of stuff. Which gave birth to games like GTA and stuff like this. I mean, you know this, I know. This, right? But my point is that we, is that there was a certain publication that happened in the mid '80s, and then it carried on going, and it had a a, a cadence, the, the 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 language, and the, the it wasn't at all respectful for the medium at all. Least of all the people who made the games, um, they would make sort of very very cutting remarks about people who made them, played them, all sorts of things. It was very self-depreciating. Hmm. And um, that's kind of infused into British um, commentary, video game commentary, even to this day. I mean, there is, of course there are exceptions, and we've gone on and moved on from there. But even to this day, I find myself doing it. You know, like, <laughs> well, okay, that's good, Chris, but how can you make that funny? It's good. because we're obsessed with it was like no 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 has to be funny remember has to be funny um it's ludicrous this idea is i don't did you ever have this 
No, no. I mean, I, I don't know. I'll have to check that out now, though. I'm curious because now that I hadn't really realized that. So now I'm going to be like on the watch next time I read some. Yeah. <laughs> check so, out some. I mean, this is all relevant to our conversation, everyone, just to be clear. But the point <laughs> is, you know, you started off from this commentary and it's good to have a look objectively at any medium or any method of writing. Of course you do because you're a writer and that's what you do. That's what we do. And, and it's something I've always sort of checked myself on. Like, why, Chris? It's been 30 years. Stop writing like this. But it works <laughs> uh, to a point. Um, but, you know, the, the, the publication was called Your Sinclair. So people oh, listening. Yeah, I, I, no, you wouldn't know. I have yeah. <laughs> But Your Sinclair was like the de facto, that was it. Uh, that was like the, 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 the boilerplate magazine, computer video game magazine of its era. And it set down a path that we have never shaken. And we will never shake. Uh, because it's like it's a, it's so it's like it's like you know Blackadder or or Monty Python those kind of cultural touchstones. Your Sinclair was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, then again, we're going to be all replaced by YouTubers at some at some point. Yes, <laughs> it's, exactly. Everything is changing. Everything, we're we're in yeah. this like rapidly shifting yes. realm of of difference. <laughs> but um, no, so because of that, then then later on it became digitizer, which was a weird thing that I'll talk about another time but it's it was a uh, it was this melting pot of extraordinary writing very surrealist writing then took over in the early 90s really weird stuff to the point where like hang on is this talking about a video game I don't know okay right what what does Mr. T got to do just let it run with it it's okay why is he talking about trash cans just let it go fine and it's just it got really really weird and um, but we ever since then we've We've stuck to that, that formula. Even like people were born after it happened and writing huh. now, they're still writing like it because they're bringing on the legacy from the people they've replaced. And it's just how it is. Uh, I'm not sure if I like it or not, but it's just the way it is. But So you made your transition from writing about games to making them. I'm fascinated by this. What tools did you do to do that, use to do that? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, the transition itself was sort of an accidental thing that happened, but I didn't actually didn't actually get into game journalism with the intention of ever making games, even though I kind of dabbled in tinkering with some game tools well before I even started doing right. uh, games writing. But um, yeah, I've always kind of Game Maker Studio has been on or Game Maker, I guess, has been on my radar radar for a long time. Uh, actually, a couple years before I started freelancing. I, I think it was a way one of the, a way back in one of the earlier versions of it. I started playing around with it. I was like, oh, this is cool. But back then there was no digital distribution. It was a completely different ball game. And the option I had at the time, if I wanted to like make a game and sell it, was to like put it on discs and sell it at like in, on the counter <laughs> of uh, you know like mom and pop shop down the street. Yeah, so that was bag. Yeah, yeah, back at like which old are now school. the domain of both drug people and board <laughs> gamers. I'm fit into the latter category. <laughs> going into a stationer shop and saying, I'd like all of the Ziploc bags, please. All of them. How many, sir? All of them. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. It's the worst. Anyway, Which is but, yeah. Not so economical, but uh, yeah, so I get, kind of set that aside and focused on writing and, and then, you know, shifted gears into freelancing and covering games because I kind of always wanted to do something game related. Um, and then I kind of got to the point where I was writing for a lot of publications and things. Uh, I was kind of looking for that next thing to do. And I started sort of tinkering, tinkering with uh, some Game Maker stuff. And uh, yeah, Game Maker Studio is sort of the the tool I use primarily, although I've just recently started shifting over to Unity and, and, and Twine and exploring some other things. So um, yeah, that's a great tool in terms of just like getting, If you, I didn't know anything about like proper coding. And so I would just kind of start fiddling around with their drag and drop stuff and seeing like what you could do. And that gave me a, kind of a, a foundation for learning sort of the, the basics of just kind of designing stuff and what's involved in putting things together and um, the different aspects of like, you know, art and music and, and kind of building the logic of the game. And then eventually kind of got to the point where I started doing coding. And now um, the, the games I'm working on now are pretty much all game maker language code. I'm not using any of the drag and drop stuff. So I've kind of gradually evolved over a couple of years. And I think that transition was felt really daunting initially. Like I'm like, Oh, I'm never gonna learn how to code. That's going to be like super complicated. Um, and I don't come from like a programming degree. Like I just, I, I can write, <laughs> that's my main uh, focus. So, you know, 
being able to kind of go from not knowing anything about coding to being able to code in a complex card game like Missile Cards um, in only three years of just tinkering and fooling around and putting games out uh, was amazing because I, I would have never dreamed that I could have done that. So Game Maker kind of helped me bridge that gap. And now I'm at the point where I still like Game Maker for its simplicity and sort of quick rapid prototyping and 2D stuff. But I'm trying to push more into uh, like C Sharp and some other languages that are a little bit more complicated that I need to get my head around. But like trying to be able to do more and just kind of get better with different tools. So, uh, yeah, that's how I got got started making games with, with Game Maker Studio. That's fantastic. I mean, speaking for myself, um, I had totally different avenue and place i already knew c plus um oh, nice so i had a really good but i was using that for other things uh that skill set for other things and then sure someone was saying oh yeah this game maker thing and they gave it away for free for a humble bundle thing was thought, oh that's cool i downloaded that and i completely ignored the user interface <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. What's this? Because oh, I was already knew something quite of not being arrogant, but consider my place where I was. I already knew this quite complex language. Went, yeah, so oh, it makes it easy. So to went, well, well, this, this is a really, really. This is even higher level than C. Christ. So then <laughs> I thought it is. I mean, it is much higher level. Because um, when I was learning um, programming many thousands of years ago. Um, <laughs> You know, they would actually end up, you know, go delving into assembly because you had to. Uh, oh, wow, there was yeah. no um, libraries and, and high-level languages that you have now. Uh, well, they were, but they weren't very good anyway. And when they compiled, <laughs> they compiled very badly. So I ignored them and I just went to... And then eventually I... So I was doing sort of machine code and stuff. And then I went on to, you know, eventually on to C because everything... Only people write drivers now do assembly. For obvious reasons. <laughs> uh, um, but so for me, Game Maker has been this prototyping device that already came from a space that was going, well, yeah, that's fine, but let's just make stuff, you know, because I don't want to make my own engine. I don't have time. I've got other things to do. I'm a, yeah. You know, so I've, just, I've been doing, messing around with it since then. I've got some books and stuff. And, and, that, and while I'm, I know C, I don't know C sharp, and I know I need. And I need to know about C sharp in order to understand Unity. So I'm coming at it from a completely different angle. Everyone's going, "No, Chris, <laughs> you meant to come from the UI." It's like, no, because it doesn't. It's not enough. It wasn't enough for me. It wasn't. Enough. I think that illustrates pretty well that there's so many different paths to kind of getting into making games. Even yeah. like, regardless of your background and experience, like you can pretty much find some tool, whether it's Twine or Game Maker or something completely random, to kind of just start fiddling with and get get your head around it and start making stuff, which is kind of the fun yeah. aspect of indie development is just making stuff. <laughs> and that's and the rare eventually so fallen so much, and which is why we've got this huge avalanche of games, which is why. Oh, yeah. I'm very careful about who I have on the show and make sure I sort of raise the profile up with something I believe in, which is why I have you on, Nathan, because, you know, uh, it's something, I think Missile Cards is, which is what we're talking about here today, um, <laughs> but eventually, everyone, we will, um, is a thing that, um, is, 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 is something that's, it's a great advert for, for Game Maker. The best one being Hotline Miami, in my opinion. I mean, that was, True that, yeah. That was the poster child it doesn't want to be, and I don't think the developers want it to be either, because they're very sort of um, they don't even like their portrait taken or anything. They're very they're very secretive people. They don't like to really <laughs> talk about what they've done, maybe because it's so distorted and weird. I don't know. Um, but um, the, the it's that that's a game made entirely out of game maker, a very very high level programming language that's developed for one purpose, one purpose alone: the making of games. And hence its name um but you know whereas the other languages we've spoken about c sharp and plus plus and uh, mm -hmm. are much more broader they, they're used for anything uh right. which is what i <laughs> used it for i used it for other things um so for, again from coming in from from this angle i said well how do i make a game what do i make a game and the fact that I mean, i'm sure that missile cards isn't your first game though is it no, no, yeah. It's I think it's the third one I've released commercially and probably like the twentieth one I've tinkered with. Have you participated in game jams at all? Have you tried that? <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Um I kind of do that on my own. It, like the the magic of the game jam is in like, hey, let's try to do this amazing thing in a short period of time. Like see what you can come up with and those constraints can be really empowering. Yeah. And that's actually how I'll talk about that later, but that's kind of how Mills Cards sort of came about. 
but I've done a few like short and simple game jams and I'm kind of missed. I missed out on the seven day roguelike one this time around though. Cause I was in the middle of launching missile cards. So I'm kind of bummed about that. Um, but yeah, I think game jam is awesome just as an exercise in like creative restraints because those can be so valuable just in terms of like not, it's very easy to think big when you're trying to design your first couple games and be like, Oh, I want to make this huge thing. But the tighter and more constrained you can make it the the one the better chances you're going to have actually finishing it but two you can kind of see like what get a feel for that design and completing something because making games you know making the game is only like that's not the finish line it's you know launching the game and getting it out and marketed and, and selling and there's so many other facets to that so if you can just get to the point where you're finishing the game that's like a feat in and of itself uh, yeah, <laughs> so yeah game jams are great for that for sure and then there's the tail afterwards some games yeah. have a very very, very long tail um, Rogue being a good example, mm-hmm. or right. Dwarf Fortress. Yeah, game. seriously. So, but that's a, that's a whole other podcast, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but you know, I'm not suggesting that uh, Missile Cards will be another Dwarf Fortress. That would be ridiculous. Um, <laughs> but nonetheless, there are you, you've got to embrace that tale. I mean, you've got yes, you work. You may be thinking about or developing your next thing. I don't know. I can't speak for you. But no. I'm, I'm, Truth be told, you've got to own the fact that there's going to be a trail of things that happen upon the oh, yeah. launch of the game, and good and ill. Hopefully good. Absolutely. Hope one of those <laughs> these things you're doing right now, what we're doing right now, is one of those good things. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, you've got to deal with the audience. You've got to deal with their demands. And, like, but why would anyone want that? They'll ask for something. Like, that's the dumbest idea ever. You don't say that um, <laughs> outwardly, but you mutter it to you or your partner going, read this, look at this. It's insane insanity. But no one wants this. Well, clearly someone does. Um, yeah, it can be really tough for sure. And it can be tough because you don't want to, you know, you don't want to design by committee. Uh, I, I actually um, challenged the developers behind Elite Dangerous about this. Um, <laughs> I actually, when the early days, when it's just coming out and it's just coming out in this modular form, I thought it was a great idea. I still think it's a great idea how they released them. Um, Elite Dangerous, but my concern was it was designed by committee mm. in that it had the community having a very, very loud voice in how it was evolving. And I said, how do you temper that? How do you stop that from diluting what you're trying to do? After all, it's your game that you're making. Yes, the community have a, a valuable voice, but it's not one that should override yours. And that was a, it's that, an interesting point. It's a, very, it's a good balance to try to struggle. It can be a struggle to find that balance, too, depending on your project and how uh, vocal your community is for sure and also your own personal ego and your own personal mental acumen and state and whether you got you know you're going to stand there and say no this is what i made this is this is my thing i appreciate your feedback uh, maybe consult constructive as you like but this is what it is you know so i think there's a fine line there's i mean that's i, I think for me i find it super useful to, to get that feedback there's definitely a fine line between like what I am capable of doing in terms of the restraints of the project or, um, you know, doing updates and post-launch stuff or, you know, doing something like a Linux version, which I have not set up to do. And people sometimes get really angry about that. It's like, uh, you know, I don't think everyone realizes like if you're just a gamer, you know what you want to get from a game, but you don't know what necessarily goes into creating it and and the level of, you know, complexity or not like, Oh, why isn't there the safe, the safe system like this? Or why isn't there, you know, whatever more levels. It's like, uh, there's a lot of things that go into creating something what might initially seem very simple yeah. and easy to do, quote unquote. No, it's don't you just press a button? It's a phenomenon. Right. It's <laughs> a little thing. Don't you just press a button? Please stop saying that phrase. Uh, no, you don't. Uh, for me to do that, uh, I would have to move that semicolon. I don't want to move that semicolon because if I do that, <laughs> that will cause a massive cascade effect that I'll be here for another six months trying to fix. Sorry. Share a bit too much there, <laughs> um, but um, anyway, but yeah, I, I can only empathise with your plight. Uh, but uh, it's a good plight because you've made something and you've released it onto the world, and uh, it's a good thing. And uh, you know the whole Linux thing. I mean, I don't have a Unix machine here. <laughs> I could make one, but no. I mean, I've been th- I could I could make one. I've been think, thinking about it, like. We'll be, uh, but uh, why? You know, it's just—it's what would I get from that? <laughs> Apart from a testing machine for, you know, games I make. I don't know, but yeah, there's an audience for them apparently, 
who you know despise everything Microsoft or stroke Apple. <laughs> but I have a Mac, I have an Apple Mac laptop, so maybe I should make a Unix machine. It's a good idea. <laughs> uh, note to self: Make Unix machine on the list of things to do. Oh wait, so, so I need to have another, another arm now. There it is. There you go. Right. So, what are your biggest influences as a creator of things, Nathan? Sure. Um, well, uh, Missile Cards is kind of an aberration from the types of games I normally make. Uh, most of the projects that I've been working on, either in, in secret behind the scenes or that I've re- released, are kind of dark, uh, interactive fiction, horror, RPG type things where there's lots of dismemberment and awfulness and uh, kind of you must heavy, have heavy theme. Dungeon, then. Uh, yeah, yeah, that was actually that was a pretty good. I, I can't say I drew a lot of influence from that no. from my previous project because I don't think it was out at that time. But that's definitely something that, um, just visually too, like just the whole themes are very interesting. So, yeah, I draw a lot of. Um, <clears throat> typically, my work draws a lot on like things like heavy metal and the occult and horror and uh, '80s fantasy movies like, uh, oh gosh, like uh, the Dark Crystal and the Labyrinth and oh, uh, yeah. Legend. Bless it. Yeah, Dark I love all that stuff. Great film. Those are all great. Jim Henson, yeah. like all that stuff is just it's like, you know, the, that mix of fantasy, but also just a little bit creepy at the same time. And uh, so that's typically the kind of stuff that influences my work. And most of the things I'm working on now are kind of in that vein of just dark, bizarre, gruesome. So Missile Cards is completely different in that it was, it, you know, it's very bright and colorful and, and kind of pixel art and cutesy. Um, and it was inspired very heavily by uh, the, you know, Atari games I grew up playing as a kid. Like I think the Atari. 2600 was my first system. I had computers and stuff back, uh, but like that was the first like console type thing I played. So okay. I grew up playing games like Missile Command and uh, Zaxxon, and I'm trying to think of some other good ones. But uh, yeah, Zaxxon yeah. on the ClecoVision, what an amazing port that was. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, but no, good good choice, and it definitely it, it, it there's yes, you, you're right. The, the influence from Missile Cards is clearly Missile Command. But you've you've merged it with something else. Oh yeah, for sure. And uh, is this sort of what you're still telling me? Is you're influenced by the games you play, with both now and in the distant past? To an extent, yeah. I think for me, I actually draw a lot of influences. I mean, this ga- this game in particular is definitely very gamey influenced. I think for my other projects, I draw from a lot of other mediums typically. So I, I usually. I'm more interested in like reading or watching movies or listening to music and getting themes from that that I work into what I'm doing. Uh, Missile Cards is definitely like very influenced by sort of retro themed uh, sort of visuals and sounds and sort of concept, but also just like the card game aspect of it. Um, I used to I love strategy games, so I play. I grew up playing chess with my dad. Um, I would play solitaire. It's really, um, I played a lot. It's really interesting. You mentioned chess. It's not the first time this show's mentioned chess, and yeah, not a big a, fan. Because, it, <laughs> uh, I've said this before, so take a drink, everyone, but the, the big problem I have with chess is ultimately there's two patterns clashing with each other. Yeah. And whoever's got the best pattern is going to win. Yeah. I mean, Good point, that's yeah. what I think. So I'm not a big fan of it because that's ultimately all it is. Now, you could argue that every strategy game is two patterns clashing with each other. That's not the point. <laughs> the, 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 my point about that against it is, wait, you're right. You know, it is rock, paper, scissors, and Spock. Nonsense. Um, but it's, it is that. But when it comes to chess, it's so in your face. <laughs> it is just pure pat maths in its most base form. You know, you have a certain set of pieces on a certain set of grid of a limited size, and each piece can only move a certain... It's just patterns. And that's what bothers me, bothered me about the game, ultimately, as a child. Like... Business patterns, which I know is what maths is really just about. But I was like, but yeah, you you were into so so, I mean, there is strategy in missile cards, though. Oh, for sure, yeah. I mean, chess was one example. That's like one of the earlier strategy games I played. I I really I get excited about playing. uh, See, I love card games, but I don't. I I grew up playing Magic: The Gathering and a lot of those like traditional, you know, trading card collectible games. I don't like those kind of games now. Like the kind of games I'm most interested in are, are card games that kind of go off the beaten path. Like uh, good examples are on like mobile. Uh, uh, card Thief is, just came out. That's really interesting. Uh, card Crawl, also made by the same creator. Um, and there's a bunch of other sort of weird, quirky card games that are kind of gravitating towards the mobile space. 
um, that I've been really fascinated by because it's like taking, you know, it's not just solitaire or it's not just met, you know, you, you line up your monsters and you fight. It's like games that take a different approach. And I think I've also, I don't play a lot of tabletop games cause I kind of am by myself most of the time, but I really love looking at card game. Like I do a lot of research by like seeing what people are making with card games and missile cards kind of, you know, one of the ideas I had was to do a tabletop version. I don't know that I'm ever going to do that because it's kind of an ordeal to put one together, but, um, I like the idea of playing with systems and and being able to like create strategies. So uh, cards are kind of a great way to do that code wise because like you can, you know, slap a bunch of cards on the screen and come up with an infinite number of weird ways that you can interact with them yeah. and, and put them in different themes. Like I've, I've been designing card games for a long time, even though this is probably one of the first ones I've ever like actually released. So I'm hoping to do more of that down the road, like food related card games, monster <laughs> card games, just weird stuff that's like, Card games are not the type of card game you'd expect to see uh, on any platform. That's kind of one of the things that also inspired Mr. Cards was like looking at some of the weirder things that are out there and trying to find a way to kind of mash up these different sort of genres and styles of play to kind of create something that's unique but also familiar enough that people will still kind of get the gist of it. Gotcha. And that's, I mean, you're talking about um, sort of how weird and wonderful card games and how they interact with each other. This weekend is gone because I'm part of a very, very large board game group here in London. It's called oh, London nice. on Board. We hold uh, events every single day of the week. Um, don't ask how we do that, but we do. <laughs> and uh, 50 or 60 people show up every day to play board games in a basement in, in, in pubs all across central London. Uh, oh, that sounds great. <laughs> the great thing about it is because, because London's got an amazing... First of all, it's 9 million people, so it's a good catchment. And then it's got an amazing yeah. public transport system where people can get in and out of London very quickly. And most of us all work in central London, but we don't actually work, live there. We just work there, and then we pop out. Um, but So we just thought, rather than go home immediately, we just go to this pub and play board games and then go home. Um, this sounds like a, like a great time. It's an amazing time. <laughs> We've got, you get great beer as well because, you know, reasons. Um, but, um, uh, but the game I played this weekend, actually just, actually yesterday I think it was I played, yeah, yesterday, um, was a game called Millennium Blades. Have you heard of this? No, but I like the sound Millennium of that. Millennium Blades is basically a game made for you, I think, based on what you just said. <laughs> this is a game about a fictional car collecting you know, game like Magic mm. the Gathering. It's fictional though, but it's also about tournaments that are run for this game. So it's a game about a game. Oh, about a game. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. Look it up on Killing YouTube. Back layers. Yeah, it's got just like because there's the, the opening part is you have to build your deck, but rather than having sixty cards in your deck, you only have eight. And mm. but it is a, still a microcosm. All the things are there, like. You know, you have special abilities, you have special icons in each card, you have special collections like limited edition promo copies. It's all there. All of <laughs> it. Sounds great. All of this. And super weird too. But it's just brilliant because one wonderful thing about it is that, you know, you have tournament play, but that's, the, you know, one half of the game. But the other half of the game is you actually build up your deck and you have to, you trade with each other. Like, has anyone got oh, a wow. red five? I need a fire five star. <laughs> Has anyone got one of these? I've got... Okay, and then they start sort of horse trading with each other because that's what you do with collectible card games. But what the beautiful thing about Millennium Blades is it's a self-contained unit. You don't go out and then buy loads of booster packs. There's no booster packs to buy. Oh, it's, a, it's, it's an artificial construct. That's great. <laughs> so you just go, right, I just played a game that normally cost me thousands of dollars and years and pain and eventual selling off on eBay. Now it's just, oh, we're done. Yeah, we're done. Okay, let's pass it all together. Done. I think it's an interesting point, though. Like, people people can get, you, you can get some really fascinating ideas for, like, traditional video games by looking outside of, like, I think a lot of people, they'll, they'll tend to kind of, I want to make a platformer because I grew up playing platformers, or I want to make a RPG because I grew up playing Dungeons and Crawlers. But, like, you, you can find some really interesting ideas in tabletop gaming or other things besides traditional games. And I think those often kind of make for the most interesting, unusual things to kind of build into your projects too yeah to make a game about gaming culture <laughs> right. that takes some balls doesn't it really to actually go i'm gonna make a game about another, a facet of our culture no don't I think do there actually was a card game that did that i can't think of it off the top of my head but it was like a gdc it was like a convention card game that someone did yeah and it was like a discussion game where it's like you pull a card and it's about an indie game and then you pull another card and it's about an indie game and you have to discuss something about 
you know, which one is better? I don't know. Yeah. No, <laughs> look it up. Millennium Blades. It, unfortunately, you can't walk into a store and buy it. It's one of those Kickstarter jobbies. Um, uh, yeah. It's so annoying. But uh, I do own a copy. Uh, of course I do. Um, <laughs> but uh, something like that, why wouldn't I? Um, but uh, no, it's it's definitely... It does... All the, all the systems is... It's beautifully laid out. You lay out your cards and you compete against each other. You clash against each other, and it's it's lovely. It's a lovely, <laughs> lovely game. But uh, yeah, that's that. There's 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 something that, that appealed to you definitely because it, it ticks all those boxes. Awesome. <laughs> so, what developer do you most admire in the industry, and why? Oh man, I feel like I was prepared for this question, and then I now I'm drawing a blank. Um, you know, I kind of tend to look up to a lot of different people. Um, I don't feel like weird naming like a list of names, but there's like um, the, the people that I most idolize, I think, are people who are in the trenches doing doing it. So like some people who are also newer developers who haven't been making games for 20 years, um, they're just like trying interesting stuff and, you know, being willing to, to kind of go out on a limb and, and put themselves out there and do something different, whether they're going to succeed or fail, like doesn't matter. Like they're, they're making an effort to do something unique. Um, and then there's other folks like, like, uh, Rami over at Vlambeer, like they're, I love a lot of the stuff they put out, uh, studio wise, but I also like the fact like he's, he's going around like putting on talks and like being a part of, uh, the education of, of you know, other folks in, in the community about, um, talking about issues and putting stuff out there. I'm a big fan of like talking shop cause I'm kind of, I get to nerd out. I really nerd out on like the process of making things and talking about industry stuff. I did that when I was doing freelance writing and, and, you know, games journalism. And I do that now, uh, as a developer, like I love to, uh, connect and hear hear like what people are experiencing and 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 in fact with my own stuff I'm like I'm, I've been really honest and open about sort of my struggles and uh, challenges with trying to get through different aspects of making games because it's definitely been a, a difficult process for me in, at times uh, and it's a lot of ups and downs so I think it's I look up to people who are very open and like a willing to share and, and like go through that publicly. And like, it's not just about, I'm going to make the game and sell it and buy my game. It's like, here's what I went through to make it. And, and you can kind of empathize with that. And I think that's really fascinating. And there's a lot of interesting folks out there that are being, you know, I appreciate their willingness to share kind of what they're going through and willingness to help other people out too. Like I can, I can email some, a lot of folks and just be like, Hey, how's it going? I have this question or, you know, whatever. And, and oftentimes I'll get a re- reply and I try to pass that down uh, on the line too if people get in touch with me about things. So that's sort of a weird roundabout answer to your question. But like, I think it's just, um, I really like to see people, you know, kind of being kind to their neighbors, <laughs> so to speak, in terms so of So you're the, telling me that, you know, Ram is a really good example. Still haven't got him on the show because he's the hard man to pin down. He's busy, uh, right? <laughs> kind of busy. Uh, I've met him many, many times, but it's just, we keep promising each other, we should do the thing. It doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, because you know he's a busy man but um, I should reach out to him again I'll just try harder um, because he'll be a great guest but um, no, what you're telling me is that all the people who have helped you and all the people you have helped they're the ones you admire right? well not myself obviously but like yeah I mean no, uh, you've helped uh, people I'm I, sure you have I think, I think that like I just, I don't know, I guess I guess maybe I connect in that way. So it's sort of saying like I don't really look out to people so much as that I really appreciate when people are open and able to and willing to share and willing to be approachable. And I think you could see, you see a lot more of that perhaps in some some of the indie game communities and online. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a developer that I live out in the middle of nowhere. I'm not, I live nowhere close to any sort of game industry communities. No. So I basically have all my interaction with people through email and Twitter and, and online for the most part. So, you know, that's, that can be really challenging. So being able to, uh, you know, connect with people in different ways can be really valuable. So I think, yeah, that's sort of my weird answer <laughs> to that one. No, it's great. It's a great answer. I mean, it's, it's, I've had everything from, you know, my, my own pet dog to, um, to you know, just Blizzard. Okay, it's a good answer. Right? But yours is just as, just as valid. Uh, any answer is valid, really. Um, but no, thanks for that. Thanks for sharing that. So last question in the first half, um, which I have to legally have to ask because it's a podcast about video games, so I have to ask this question. Um, what are you playing right now? Oh man, okay. Whew. Let me. I'm gonna have to open up my Steam thing here because I just there was a game I played uh, just came out. It's called Untold Stories. Man, is it super weird? <laughs> um, I think it developer developer Di- digital put it out, and right. it it's kind of this weird horror game that initially masquerades as like a sort of retro themed uh, 
um, parser interactive fiction type thing. Right. But it gets really bizarre and really kind of dark and uh, – I won't spoil it, but it's, it's a lot more than what it initially seemed. So I sat down and I was like, is oh, this is kind of... text adventure or... No. no, it's like a 3D like first-person game where you actually right. are playing a text adventure on a computer initially. Right. Uh, and then obviously the game evolves from that. But it's super weird and I was not, it, it, not expecting it. And it really was a lot of fun. So that's one of the ones I picked up recently. Um, I've been playing a game called uh, House of Many... Or A House of Many Doors, which is sort of a creepy very interactive fiction horror adventure game um, i'm getting a theme it, here nathan no no yeah <laughs> you're not a call of duty player are you you, you don't generally play madden i'm getting not getting no. that from you really i think 90 percent of the games i play are, are indie games made by people that i follow because usually i'll be like hey let's if i find something interesting online i'll kind of follow them and see what they're working on right. and Oftentimes, I'll spend my money. I, I choose to, for the most part, spend my money on supporting other developers whose work I appreciate. So sometimes I'll just be like, "Hey, I want to play a random game. Let me pick something up." Other times, it's like, and usually it's sort of like, "Hey, I'll follow someone when their game comes out. I'll buy it because I'm interested." So that ends up being a lot of what I play. Um, I, I I picked up I think Life is Strange, which is not really a super indie game. But that was that was like a, a while ago, and that was kind of yeah. interesting thing i've been playing through that i do a lot of mobile gaming uh so i'm playing card thief right now which is out by tiny touch tales um super weird kind of solitary card game but it's kind of if you if you've ever played the game thief uh the sort of the stealthy adventure uh first person game oh right uh, well, but, but this is sort of one with the zombies in it and that's when i stopped playing <laughs> this is sort of like a, a card you, game you can't sneak version past zombies you can yeah yeah <laughs> but yeah so okay so, so i've play a lot of stuff on mobile for the most okay. part but uh Cool. I mean, uh, Card Thief, you've mentioned it a couple of times. Yeah. Describe it a little bit more than what we've, apart from the name. What's what happened? Sure. Well, it's um, the game before was a game called Card Crawl, which is sort of like a solitaire dungeon crawler. Um, okay. And it's made by a guy named Arnold, I think is his name. And uh, he goes by Tiny Touch Tales on Twitter. Uh, super cool guy. And I've chatted with him a couple of times about like card stuff and, and whatnot. But uh, this Card Thief just came out and it's sort of like a. Uh, a stealth game where you're traveling around a, I think it's a three by, th- uh, I think it's like a nine card grid, um, and you're you're kind of, hey, you have limited stealth points. You're moving through darkness and light and guards, and you the idea is to kind of you're in these sort of virtual castles, but it's just within the scope of this sort of board you're playing. So you're trying to make moves and spend your stealth points carefully to kind of stay in the shadows. And if you get caught, um, you can get out of that, but it's, it's tricky. So it's, it's a very like interesting and unusual sort of solitaire, uh, strategy sort of stealth game, which is super kind of neat. takes a little while to get a feel for, but, um, I beta tested it and I, and I really enjoyed it and I just bought it when it came out, I think it was a couple weeks ago and, uh, really interesting game. Very gorgeous, gorgeous artwork. I love, uh, I'm trying to think of the artist who does. I think it's mixer. I think is the person's name. Uh, love the artwork. Just like super, really unique looking um so yeah that's on mobile i think it's for only a couple of bucks card thief is worth checking out if you like solitaire and stealth and kind of interesting yeah i used card to games. play a lot of mobile games until zelda arrived in my face and that's <laughs> been that it's yeah i still just, don't have a switch no it's, it's i probably just, won't go no it's for great just getting sitting there on the train no one bats an eyelid but i'm just, and i'd much rather skip through hyrule than you know um play another another game of threes although threes is awesome <laughs> But, you know, I do like that, yeah. Wow, what a game. But no, great great response, great answer. Yes, cool, good stuff. Um, so that's it for the first half. Well done, you made it. You, 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 you survived. You, you killed the first uh, boss, mini boss. Answering right. that question. Sometimes there's been this sort of hollow pause with that one, like nothing. But sometimes, <laughs> very, very, very rarely, I'm happy to say. Um, but so there's been sometimes like well, I've only been working on my own game, like okay, but no, nine times out of ten, well, ninety nine times out of hundred, they say, oh, I'm playing. That's know. pretty funny though, because actually, like since I started making games, I've had a lot less time to actually play them. I pretty much play them for research for the most part. <laughs> yeah, which is, yeah. is a place that and you end up being in when you yep. both commentate them and on them and then start making them. Yeah, you end for up sure. Playing them because you find this particular mechanic quite fascinating. And realise that the relationship, and the, you you start breaking it down, which mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. The, the creator doesn't want you to. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on then to the second half okay. of the show, where we delve deep into missile.
time. Zeroth question. I don't know why it's called the Zeroth question, because you listen to the show. Tell us about missile cards. What is it? Yeah, um, missile cards is sort of a mashup between um, the Atari Classic Missile Command and a uh, solitaire card game. Uh, basically, you're... Your, the, the general premise is you're sort of defending uh, your bases from these like death things falling from the sky. So it can be comets, it's nukes, it's um, sky airborne hazards that will destroy you uh, by crashing into you and damaging your base. And you're basically shooting lasers and missiles and uh, cannons and other things to sort of clear the board before they, they all fall down and damage you. So it's a matter of sort of, um, you know, playing defense cards so you have like your, your rockets and stuff you'll you'll get a like weapons card you have to play it because that costs like action points so you play it and it charges over the course of turns and then you can deploy it and use up a turn to kind of whittle away at uh these meteors and different things that are coming down and each each uh, hazard um has sort of like its own hit points that will deal damage to you if um if it hits your infrastructure. So it's a game that's essentially a, a sort of intense management uh, strategy game where you're trying to clear, you have like a, basically a deck of cards and um, you're trying to clear all the hazards from that deck based on sort of what you draw in terms of uh, defenses and special power up abilities and things. Um, so you're kind of managing resources and sort of trying to use the deck to clear itself uh, of all the hazards to progress. And it's highly replayable, uh, very kind of retro chip tune pixel arty. Um, but it's sort of a weird combination of things that uh, may not initially seem like they go well together. <laughs> playing solitaire and playing like uh, an intense, uh, you know, Atari game from from the eighties. Um, but yeah, that's essentially missile cards in a nutshell. I, I describe it as uh, missile command versus you know versus solitaire, except with more explosions and flaming death orbs and nuclear warheads and whatnot. Yeah, I think there's was way more to it than that, but. Yeah, for sure. I think what's extraordinary is you've taken a very fluid game, which is Missile Command, which I still maintain is best play, played with a trackball. Um, oh, yeah. Because, yeah, I you know, you, it's, it's difficult on the 2600. Um, and on the on the 8 bits, though, they do have a trackball controller, so that's much better. Um, but uh, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's not... It's, it's an incredible game um, to, to try and turn that very fluid experience into what is essentially a turn-based concept of slowing everything down to a point where again well you're gonna fire that eventually right but rather than you telling me you know you hit the fire button then it immediately fires that's going to cost you it's going to cost you action points it's going to cost you energy it's going to cost you time time you ain't got but you can't yeah. fire that immediately because you have to build up this infrastructure and it also has to be timed in just the right manner in order to 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 in, to to destroy whatever it is that's falling from the sky and basically the 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 interface consists of two halves much like football is a game of two halves we have a grid so there's a grid isn't there of of these yep. things that fall down every turn hurtling towards your your base and there's a thing in the middle like this main city in the middle then there's some ancillary bases either side mm -hmm. and so basically what you've got to do is you've got time when you trigger things just in the right manner to optimize everything and this is what i want you to to the first sort of design question i have for you is from my experience with, with missile commands and it's been quite a while i have to say ever since you gave me the code um timing is everything to missile commands yeah. How do you believe you communicate this to the player? <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, it, I think it was sort of a, a process that evolved through the design. Like initially, the, good point though, like basically tang, trying to, the idea, I think the ultimate concept was how do I take a game where, you know, you're, you're basically, it's a real-time action game and turn it and shoehorn it into sort of a turn-based strategy format and make that actually work and make it interesting. So, Design-wise, that's kind of where I started thinking about like, okay, it's not just a matter of blasting an individual thing. It's like, let's give these things numbers so they have, you know, hit points essentially. And then, um, you know, rather than just having it hit your base and destroying your base, it's like when the, when these hazards reach your base, they're going to deal the damage that is on the thing, is on the card. Or, you know, basically their hit points is going to be dealt to 
the base. At least for in terms in this game, it's the main base has hit points. The side, the additional bases are sort of you can hit. They get hit once and they can absorb the damage, and then uh, and then if they hit again, the game ends. So there's definitely a strategy in terms of like choosing whether to take a hit if you if you if you want to save a card if you have a you know a six cannon you want to save that for a, a nuke warhead coming down that's going to be a lot harder to destroy than a regular comet versus you know do you spend that now and blow up the card and then one of the ways i tried to make it sort of uh add strategy to it but also make it more intuitive was to make the grid that it drops have a sort of combo system to it so down the left side of like the playing field which is like the action side of it there's you know one times one two three four five six and you when you blow up if you could com- destroy a hazard in one shot it'll basically deal uh, its hit points will then be multiplied by that and added to your score. So for some of the missions where you're trying to actually do like score chasing type stuff to hit a certain benchmark, it's really important to kind of uh, balance that risk versus reward of like, do I try to stay alive and blast these, um, you know, blast these things away quickly and just get them out of the board, get out of the board before they stack up and then, you know, everything comes crashing down on you. Or do I take the time and sort of let them get a little bit closer and then blow them up when they're right about to hit my base, like the turn before they would destroy your base, then you blast them when you can get like mega points. So the idea of sort of that risk versus reward and making that clear. Um, and also, you know, the difference of like damage versus, you know, damage that will be dealt to you versus the damage you can deal. So when you damage a comet or a, a nuke or, a, you know, one of the hazards that's coming down, if you don't destroy it in one hit, it whittles it down and the number reduces. So there's kind of some math involved but I wanted to keep that sort of as not mathy. <laughs> like I want to keep it very kind of intuitive so that you're thinking about what resources do I have, um, how you're going to choose to play them and then juggling it that way. And uh, I don't know if that really answers your question, but that was one of the big challenges that sort of like no, well, what, 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 mulled over. What I was trying to get across is that um, it's the importance of timing in, in missile cards is extraordinary. Uh, you know, you can... You can play like you just described. You can have it so no missile goes more than a third of the way down the screen. Mm-hmm. You can do it if you if your cards play the cards right. You can do that. You can just sort of have it hovering above the screen, way in the top third. Um, this is something that Missile Command rewards. Right. Um, it wants you to do keep this, the skies clear, but not this game. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, no. Yeah. And that's that's what I wanted to draw out of you is, is that. Not this. Um, this is not because doing that in missile command is, you know, it's it's a it's a feat. It's a, it's it's an extraordinary thing because you you have to create a chain of explosions. Mm-hmm. But there aren't chains of explosions. Well, it's in the early part of the game. In this, in in missile cards, it doesn't it doesn't work that way. Yeah, I mean, so, it comes into balancing tension. I think that was one of the ideas of. Adding the risk reward and having it kind of, you know, yes, you can. There's different ways to play missile cards, and I think I designed the missions so there's unlockable missions that you need to defeat the three core missions in each base to progress to the next base. Yeah. And each base in the game is a completely unique deck with that introduces new hazards and new challenges, and they get harder and significantly harder the further you progress. But the idea was like, how do I make it so that uh, you know it has high replay value without being a jerk about it you know like it's like obviously there's some random number of stuff going on behind the scenes but like making it so that you can play uh you know to kind of strengthen the game over time so you're not just playing it and it just feels rote it's like you can play a, a score chasing mission and take that sort of risk that like it, it ramps up the intensity of like i'm trying to destroy these hazards closer to my base and sometimes that will bite you in the back side and you're, you're going to be screwed from that but like it, other times, if you just want to survive and win X number of missions to get, you know, or matches to get to the next, like there's different ways to play essentially. So it forces players to kind of experiment with different play styles and figure out some of the different strategies that are important later on in the game when you get towards the final couple bases. Speaking of random stuff, because you did mention that, <laughs> I want to ask you about can you explain the randomizer algorithm behind the placement of the cards? Because what we haven't really spoken about enough is on the right-hand side, we have a panel where the cards are dealt. And there's yes. X amount of cards delivered, dealt in, the, in a deck, and they are just simply flipped over and put onto a row of four. Remember if those are correct? Yeah, and, four and four. Um, yeah, and uh, they're just basically placed. And as each turn moves, the, the cards slide over to the right. And if they eventually slide out, out of the picture, they immediately become discarded by default. Uh, is there any rules and concepts and limitations or boundaries 
that you've placed on the randomizer for the deliverer of those cards, or is it entirely? Yeah. No, let's go for it. Yeah, no, it's I definitely I because one of the things I found frustrating when I was playtesting the game is sometimes and there's some of this still in the actual game that launched, but I think I've lessened it. There's times where you just get clobbered. Yeah. <laughs> and before I before I put some limitations, sometimes you would get comment after comment after comment with no way to, no to defend to, against yeah, them. Yeah. And that's that that sucks for players. So I I definitely put some training wheels behind the scenes. So it's not one hundred percent totally random. Um it does get shuffled a lot though. So one of the things I the first thing that I put in was um something that means you can you can only have two has so to, for listeners, like there's there's the upper deck where you sort of play to four different slots where you where you can play a card and charge it, and it'll lock in there, and then it charges over time. And when it's charged, then you can fire it on that turn. the The rest of the cards kind of cycle through on this sort of conveyor I built, which is I'm, I'm very proud of because I was like a weird like oh that that kind of cemented the whole idea of like oh you're loading up cards onto a conveyor belt and they shift each turn so that if you don't play a card. Um, it does get shuffled back into the deck if it goes off the conveyor. You can manually discard. You can skip a turn. But the hazards that when they're when they're on the conveyor belt, if those hit the deck, that that's when they're triggered into play. So it's this balancing act of like you know, okay, I've got a hazard coming down. Let me do something else. But the random number stuff, I started basically setting it like okay, let's, let's limit the number of hazards you can have on the conveyor at once, and that still sometimes can be a jerk to players. There's definitely times where you'll end up getting bombarded, but I tried to make it a little bit fairer. Um, so there's that limitation. One of the problems initially was uh, in the early games, when I was playtesting, I was finding that players weren't able to play a card right off the bat and they'd get frustrated. So I put in the thing so that the very first play of each match is a freebie. So you, if you draw like a six card that would cost you six AP, um, and you only get two AP each turn. You you yep. get two more added to your thing. So some cards you have to you know pay four or pay three to put them in their charge slots, and then when they're charged, they'll deal that damage when you trigger them. So um, so I had to kind of give it a little bit of like an, an early boost so that players, if they get a good card, you know it it gives them an opportunity to play. So put something on the board initially, so they're not just getting clobbered with no chance of defending themselves. Um, and then the other thing I did is. Uh, add some stuff so that when a, a card gets played into, if you have a card that um, hits the deck and you weren't able to play it, especially if it's a defense card or one of your beneficial cards, it shovels the entire deck. So sometimes you might actually get that card right back again in the next wow. turn, which is kind of weird. Uh, but it basically, it doesn't always reshuffle, but in those cases, it'll kind of shuffle up the numbers uh, and, and everything behind the scenes so that um, that can work for you, it can work against you. But I tried to keep things like constantly cycling. So, it can probably, it's definitely there's times when you're playing and it's kind of weird. It's like, oh, I'm getting these weird cards over and over again. It's because of the way it's reshuffles in the background. But I tried to make it so, you know, it was interesting and, and like unpredictable because I think the unpredictability of it makes for fun strategy. Like, you don't know what you're going to get, but if you're thoughtful in your choices and how you kind of manage your resources, you can kind of defend against most things for the most part, at least early on. Um, so I was kind of juggling that, like, how do I make it as fair as possible while still making it super hard? Because I don't want, I didn't want it to be an easy game. I want it to be the kind of game where you get clobbered a lot, but you still want to keep playing. And that was kind of what I was going for, I guess. My next question leads on to that, you know, the, the desire to keep playing, the, the, the reward of, uh, repeated play. And you've certainly drawn from, well, a rogue-like element in that there's a persistent aspect of, um, missile cards which we haven't spoken about until now is that um when you blow up these these um things these hazards whatever they may be they drop things don't they <laughs> yes and uh, you can only collect them if you play a certain card and you power up a certain card it doesn't take a lot of power to trigger but nonetheless you do need to power it up and then once you then trigger this it does it at the cost of other things like you know there are times when i'm finding myself going well, I'm probably going to get blown up, but if I just do this now, I'm going to get four of these, <laughs> you know, or something like that. So these little pellets, these things, these these debris, are currency. And this yes. currency can be used after the game's ended, you're dead, but that currency still is attributed to you, the player. Mm-hmm. And then you can use that to buy card slots, and then within those card slots, you then p- purchase additional amazing amazing rare powerful cards which quite frankly are quite imbalanced 
um, deliberately <laughs> so. I mean, they're ridiculous. Uh, and then yeah. you, you, there's one very powerful one that allows you to, you know, um, uh, what was I about to say? Yeah, well, uh, that allows you to um, select which missiles or thing you're going to blow up before rather than this, this predetermined, the one that fires at it. You can't right. aim it at all, typically. You can't say, oh, no, I want you to take that one out because this one's only got one hit point. I can take that out with a laser. But then you've got a missile that takes out a four power, but you, you just fired it and it took out a one because you had no choice. Whereas in this particular card, it gives you a choice. Yeah. Um, I want to ask, um, how has it been to... I mean, for me, I think you designed it as a way to flatten missile cards difficulty curve. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I think in part for sure. Um, there's two levels to that one, uh, because missile cards, and I can talk about this later, was intentionally designed to be a very short, constrained, uh, very tightly scoped project. Right. I didn't want to have like tons and tons and tons of extra stuff. Like there's five bases in the game and you can still probably get about 10 hours of gameplay right. trying to complete all the stuff in there. So, the, ga- the difficulty is very high um, until you get a feel for the, how the strategies work, and then it gets a lot easier to kind of use strategic choices to kind of advance. But one of the things you're right, like I did, um, so you collect debris um, from from destroyed hazards, yeah. although it fades over time. So it's do. it's a matter they of do. like, yeah, yeah. So if you you get a collector card, you can play that if it's charged, and you'll grab up um, the debris, and that accumulates towards knocking cards. I didn't want this to be like a deck building game per se, but I did want to have some, I felt like it would be stupid to not have some kind of unlockable cards because it's fun to be able to change your deck up. And while each base is kind of its own unique deck, so there's um, different hazards and different uh, weapons and, and and some things are the same from each, but there's a lot of shuffling up of, difficulty from deck to deck based on what's in each deck so you advance to a new base you're using a new deck automatically but you can modify that by using these unlockable cards and part of that was you know one level i wanted to give players something new to play so another type of card to use so when you get that you that one of the special ones that unlocks pops on the screen like oh that's different like visually it's interesting as something different and has a different kind of effect that can be another layer of strategy um, but also I wanted to kind of give the opportunity to, to players feel like they have something to work towards too. I get one of the things that, that bugs me a lot about some some card games that I do love otherwise is that I go through them too quickly. I'm just like, I don't have a reason to keep playing beyond just playing the game. Mm-hmm. So with missile cards, I really wanted to kind of capture that like on a couple different levels, like something to work towards. Um, so there's a goal to just playing because there's, you know, you're playing five different bases and they have different backgrounds, different music and different difficulty levels, but you're playing each of these bases, you know, over the course of like uh, probably a dozen matches on average. If you, if you're, if you're, you know, an average player, if you're really good, you can probably beat some of them pretty quickly. But I mean, it takes time to do this. So you're, you're replaying a lot of the same stuff over and over again. Um, so the, that's what those special cards are sort of meant to kind of help you. It give you some options. If you're finding difficulty in one area, you can kind of load these in. But they're not – they're very powerful, but they're, you don't necessarily get them when you need them, which is kind of what makes it fun and, and unpredictable. So if you get a, if you unlock slots and you, you can have up to three bonus cards that you can add cycle in uh, for a deck, and they're shuffled in randomly. So you may not get them when you need them. Um, which makes them, you know, that the time it can be a difference. The other thing that I didn't, we haven't really talked about is the sort of base uh, experience, sort of upgrades. Yes, I was going to go on to um, that. Though. It, this is related to it. Otherwise, my only concern is this question got too long. But ultimately, you can actually upgrade <laughs> your your bases as well based on the experience. Or if you succeed in actually defending the bases from from the oncoming onslaught of meteorites and what have you, or whatever has been thrown at them, um, you get experience points, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Every every hazard you destroy, you get a sort of weighted amount of experience. And then if you whereas the whereas the debris, no matter what you collected, it always adds to your total. Yeah. But you only gain experience if you win a match. Yeah. So that sort of gives you some incentive to get better. Um, but that accumulates over time, and you can unlock uh, a couple different things that are very base specific. So you can upgrade the hit points of your main base. So you can actually absorb more damage. You can unlock a laser beam, which is really useful for later levels. Um, we, you can discard cards normally from the beginning of the game, but they don't actually do anything besides just getting them off the board uh, and moving things forward if you want. But once you have a, a base ability equipped, discarding a card actually starts to charge those. So you can use them 
So what I'll do is like equip the base laser, start throwing these. If I don't want to like be collecting things, any junk cards I get that I don't want to use, just dump them into the discard pile. And eventually you'll get an extra laser fire you can use whenever you want. So there's some added strategy between that and, you know, being able to raise your shields up or improve the skills and uh, the power potency of some of these base abilities. And that's also meant to kind of mitigate the difficulty curve um, and give players just something extra to, to kind of, fool around with as they're playing and then you know they can kind of adjust their style i wanted to give some options for players to kind of customize the experience without making it too overpowered um yes it's yeah. extraordinary <laughs> um layers there details it's lovely it's a really really good idea and i was really Thanks. impressed with that scoring well, I, I can't i don't i can't take all the credit of that that was a beta tester uh, that okay. said hey yeah. like, hey we should have some uh, some uh, sort of upgrades i'm like yeah that's a good idea yeah <laughs> let me yeah. do that <laughs> that's what they're there for um scoring and optimization then um it's difficult to spot within missile com uh, cards in my opinion was this something you wanted the player to discover rather than signpost yeah, I did. I wasn't very overt, and, and like I don't even think I mentioned it in the the interactive tutorial. I, uh, this scoring system, um, I tie that into like the missions. I think uh, I think that's kind of where you start to discover it. I think it's if you're paying close attention when you see the explosions, you'll see the score pop up, and it lights up the multiplier, right. and then it kind of that kind of very subtly suggests that oh, well, this is making a difference depend, depending on like where I destroy it. Um, but you don't actually doesn't actually spell anything out about that until you actually look at the missions that you need to progress, which people are forced to do because they have to progress. You know, if you if they want to keep playing beyond the base they're on, they need to be able to sort of hit those uh, score numbers. And the only way to do that is to really kind of pay close attention to where you're destroying things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I just uh, it's. Uh, it's a great way of doing that, of giving the player a sense of accomplishment. Like, yeah, see, you figured it out. See, because now you know that <laughs> in order to get the most points, you have to blow it up right above the base. Because that that totally play, changed the way I played too. Like before, I put that in, I was like, oh, this is fun. And then I when I put in the scoring element, I'm like, ooh, now like for me, that scratches a particular itch. Where yeah. I'm like, oh, how do I optimize? Yeah. Like I can play and win, but how do I optimize it to get like the most yes, get points? The most points. <laughs> and, uh. um, but Nathan. It's been fantastic having you on because that was indeed the last question. I know, and you made it. You survived. <laughs> it's right. The it's out on Steam, Windows PC right now. Anything else? Uh, it's gonna. I'm working on a mobile edition. Right. Uh, interestingly enough, the Steam version has not been selling very well because people on Steam don't really want to play card games, I guess. Huh. <laughs> um, but people who have picked it up have been giving me really positive feedback, so that's super encouraging. I'm working on a mobile version, so there will be a, an eventual. Uh, mobile version for tablets and uh, iOS eventually. But if you want to check it on Steam, uh, you can go to www.missilecards.com and that'll take you right to the Steam page. Check it out if that looks cool. I definitely appreciate any, you know, grabbing a copy, leaving a review if you like it, all that good stuff. It's great. Great. Do play this game. It's great. So I, yeah, it's far too, spent far too much time on it. No offense. It's, <laughs> damn. it's very, very addictive. Um, it's the, the one more go thing is ridiculous. Ridiculous <laughs> in this game. I'm glad to hear that though. So, it's, uh, it's just, it's, so you quickly like, oh, I'm, I'm out. You know, I mean, the, the death animation isn't too bad. And you you get rewarded by saying, oh look, I've, you know, if you've, you haven't succeeded, but if you succeeded, it's even better because uh, you get a little bar and the, the experience rolls up and says, look, you've you've managed to get a experience point. Now you can spend it on something. Hooray! It's really good stuff. <laughs> so yeah, thanks. so well done, well done for, and thanks for coming on. Welcome to come back on and chat about your next project, whatever that may be. But in the meantime, awesome. I wish you the very best of luck with Missile Cards. Thanks so much, man. I appreciate being on the show. And so ends another episode of the Sausage Factory. Do leave us an iTunes review. And you can also, don't forget, listen to us on Stitcher.com. So just go to Stitcher.com and you can stream the show from there. You just look up the Sausage Factory and you can find us. That'd be great. You can follow me on Twitter at Chris O'Regan, no apostrophes. And uh, if you want to email me any feedback on the show, or actually you're a developer, you listen to the show, and want your game featured on it, please do email me at chris at spong.com. Also, don't forget to check out the Computer Game Show, which is the StableMate podcast, should we say, of spong.com. Bye!